When I was pastoring in Nevada, one of our church members introduced me to a man who worked in one of the casinos. And the church member had warned me ahead of time, very straightforward. She said, he doesn't like ministers. He doesn't like pastors. And when I met him for the first time, he was very upfront as to why. He said with a frown, the only thing that ministers talk about is money. And he was convinced of that. And I assured him, or tried my best to assure him, that at least for me, that wasn't the case. That I only talked about money, or what I called Christian stewardship, was when we were studying through a book of the Bible, and it came up in the text. And then we, we talked about it. And I talked with him several times at the casino, and finally, one Sunday, he came to church. I'd been preaching through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians at the time. And it so happened that on that particular morning, we were at chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul commends the Philippians for their generous support of his ministry. After the service, the visitor shook my hand and he said with a frown, I knew it, all you guys talk about is money. Once again, I tried to assure him that that wasn't the case. And I invited him to come back again, but he might want to wait till we're finished with chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians because both those chapters deal with the, the topic of, of giving unto the Lord. Well, several weeks later, I was sitting up on the platform. The organist was playing the prelude, and this gentleman came in the back of the sanctuary. I looked down at my sermon title in the bulletin for that morning, it was Christmas time, and it was something to the effect, the joy of giving. <laughs> Once again, after the service, I tried to explain to him and encouraged him to visit again. <clears throat> it was several months before he darkened the door of the church again. And when he did, it was the last time I ever saw him. Wouldn't you know it? I hadn't mentioned money for several months in a sermon, but by this time I was doing a series on true worship. And how the giving of an offering is an act of worship. And according to the Apostle Paul, is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. My only consolation in the matter was, it wasn't probably so much about what I was to preach. It was what God wanted to teach this man. But he was unwilling to hear it. Writing towards the end of his life, famed New Yorker editor William Maxwell penned this fond remembrance of his aunt. He wrote, When I was a little boy of six, I met her on a cinder path at the Chautauqua grounds one day. And she opened her purse and took out a dime and gave it to me. I don't think my father would want me to take it, I said. My father knew a spendthrift when he saw one and hoping to teach me the value of money he had put me on an allowance of 10 cents a week with the understanding that when the 10 cents was gone, I was not to ask for more. Also, if possible, I was to save part of the 10 cents. It's perfectly all right, Aunt Beth said. Don't worry, I'll explain it to him. I took off for the place where they sold Cracker Jacks, and she stands forever on the cinder path at the Chautauqua grounds, smiling at the happiness she has just set free. The pastor who thought pastors only, or the man who only thought pastors talk about money, missed the opportunity to be smiling at the happiness that he could have set free through his own generosity. Generosity is singularly beautiful, and when remembered, it prompts a kindly smile. 
And this is what the latest example of the storied generosity of the believers in Philippi at the church prompted in the imprisoned Rome or imprisoned Paul in faraway Rome. When Paul thought of the gift that the Philippians had sent by way of Epaphroditus to them, he said in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. And the apostle smile still is lingering as we get into verse 14. And if I can paraphrase verse 14, yet it was beautiful of you to share in my trouble. In fact, the apostle's smile shines even brighter in the passage that we're looking at this morning as we continue in Philippians. So please turn to Paul's letter in Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 19 of this fourth chapter, where Paul assures the Philippians regarding their generosity, and he assures them of the value of their gift, and then of God's generous supply to them. Philippians chapter 4 overflows with assurance to a generous church. It overflows with assurance to the believers at Philippi, and it overflows with assurance to generous churches today. We see the first assurance in verse 14 of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul assures the Philippians that a generous church fellowships in the gospel. They fellowship in the gospel. Verse 14, Paul writes to the Philippians, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul viewed the Philippians' generosity as evidence of partnership, of fellowship with him in their ministry. You might remember that when Paul first introduced this letter to the Philippians, he wrote of this participation in the gospel. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. And what was, was it that sparked Paul's joy? In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The word translated participation is that familiar word koinonia. Koinonia, fellowship. It comes from the koinon group of words, which means fellowship, partnership, active participation, sharing. The idea is that when you support a missionary, when you support a ministry, when you support a ministry, you act, actively participate in that ministry. In fact, Albert Schweitzer is the one that first coined the term fellowship to refer to those godly people who supported the work in Africa. He was the first one that called it a fellowship. Now we see that word on PBS all the time, the fellowship of this, the fellowship of that. But anyway, it was supporting of the work that is going on. When we took the love gift for Abby when she was here last summer, so she could buy a bicycle, so she could get to the school, so she could teach the kids. She wrote back, Dear friends at Grace, thank you so much for your gifts and support this summer. Because of you, I was able to get a really nice bike and can pedal my way to class in style. You are an enormous blessing to me and in turn to my students and their families. 
Know that I am lifting you up and remembering you to our Father. Love to you all. Abby. Now at the end of Paul's letter, he digs into that group of koinon words again. In verse 14 of Philippians chapter 4, it's translated share. You have done well to share in my affliction. The word translated well, they wouldn't have had a concept of that in the Greek. We, we, we like well when it's a noun and we like good in other places. I don't know, I never could figure out all that goodly stuff. But anyway, but the Greeks, the word that's translated well literally means good or beautiful. You did a beautiful, when something was good, it was lovely, it was beautiful. You did a beautiful thing to become partners in my affliction. And then in the next verse, in verse 15, Paul adds, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no chair, church shared with me. There it is again. You partnered with me. You participated with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Paul wanted his readers to know that in supporting him in his missionary work, in his ministry, was taking up fellowship with him as partners, in his, even in his present tribulation, in the gospel ministry. They did well, or I think it's even more Greek to say they did good. They did good. Not very good English, but they did good. It was a beautiful thing. Even though the Philippians were not in prison with Paul, they participated in his afflictions by their sympathy and their monetary sacrifice. Now, the Philippian church was a poor church. If you put it down on paper, put all the numbers down on paper, of all the churches that could have supported Paul, the Philippians were the least able to do that, at least on paper. They were the church that was least able to give from that point of view. Yet their generosity was a sign of spiritual health. In fact, Paul used the generosity of the Philippians to encourage the Corinthians to be prosperous or to be generous. So Paul uplifted the spiritual health of the Philippians as an example to the Corinthians. You might want to turn to that, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The 8th chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote to the Corinthians because he wanted them to keep a promise that they had already made. The church in Jerusalem was suffering. It was going through persecution. It was going through hard times. There was a famine in the land in Judea. The church was suffering. And one of the things that Paul did is he went to church to church to encourage them in their faith. He also encouraged them to take up an offering to help the sufferings uh, church in, in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians had made a great pledge. We don't know what it was, but knowing the Corinthians, they wanted to top everybody else and showing their, their generosity, but they were slow in coming and keeping their promise. So Paul wrote to, the, wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches in Macedonia. Of course, the principal church in Macedonia was Philippi. You know, Philippi was in Macedonia, and here Paul sees the generosity of the Philippians as having been a grace that they had received from God. They are recipients of God's grace. Why is that? Verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. 
For I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of koinonia, participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's a sign of spiritual health. They first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us, says Paul, by the will of God. Corinthians, the Philippian spiritual health, comes out of their first of all giving themselves to the Lord. When Christians first give themselves to God, and we are recipients of the grace and the generosity of God, then we extend that grace and generosity. Then they gave to us, Paul says, by the will of God. Paul assures the generous church that they are participants in the gospel ministry. Now, in the next few verses of Philippians chapter 4, Paul is going to mention two more assurances that are given to generous churches. But sadly... Many churches and many ministries and many Christians find themselves disqualified on account of this very first assurance. They don't get the second two assurances, or second and third, because they're disqualified at the first. They they haven't proven themselves generous. When, When we could ask questions like, when was the last time they gave sacrificially? When was the last time they begged for the favor of participation to support the saints? That is, fellow believers. I think I'm going to call up, you know, what is it, Missionary Fellowship? I forgot the first part. Mission Aviation Fellowship, MAF, you know. When's the last time somebody called up MAF and said, what can I do to help you? (laughs) You know, I'm just begging. What, What can I do? Begging for participation in any mission. You know, one time when I was looking for a pastoral position, I came across a church that was back east. The church in their profile were bragging about their financial condition. They were bragging about the, the social and economic status of their congregation. They had a large endowment as a church. Tons of money in the bank. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. And they had a beautiful manse, as they call it, or parsonage, for the pastor and his family. And thinking that they were generous, they wanted to support a pastor and his family in the same kind of upper-class lifestyle that was enjoyed by their congregation. Jan says, send them your resume. <laughs> yes, you did. You did. You, you haven't let me finish here. Jan said, send them your resume Not because we wanted that lifestyle, but because they were a church that proved itself to be spiritually poor. And they were in church in the word of, needed the word of God. They were lacking in the blessings and insurances of God. (laughs) They were, (laughs) they were dependent upon their own resources. They had tons of money in the bank and they had all, everybody in their congregation was just doing really well and it would have been a tremendous thing to go to them, open God's word and teach them about what true blessing of God really is. And just thinking about how you could take that big chunk of money they had in the bank and say, where would God have us invest this in the kingdom? 
Where can it gain more than 0.02% interest or whatever people are getting these days? You know, and they're probably dependent upon that interest to help their bank account look better. To help them learn to how to let go and stop hanging on to it themselves. Thinking that their future of their church and the lifestyle of their church depended upon how much money they could keep in the bank. I would imagine this church probably did give quite a bit of money to missions, but generosity is not dependent upon the amount of money that is given. It's dependent upon what? The heart of the giver. It's not a beautiful thing. They have not done well until they what? First gave themselves to the Lord. By the way, I didn't send them my resume. <laughs> but I'm sure Jan said to send it to him. <laughs> yeah. But as long as a church depends upon its bank accounts, as long as it depends upon anything other than the Lord for its physical resources, as long as it refuses to sow into the kingdom, into the work of the kingdom work, what God has for them, it forfeits the next two assurances that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 4. A generous church participates in the gospel ministry. And secondly, a generous church receives compound spiritual interest. We see this as verses 17 and 18 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes concerning the gift that the Philippians sent to Paul. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul gives the Philippians the assurance of what we could call compound spiritual interest for their generosity. It's the profit that increases to their account. Literally, it's the fruit that increases to their account. Fruit speaks of multiplication, of fruitfulness, of produce that abounds. And just so we're clear on the matter, Paul is not talking about monetary profit here. There could be monetary gain, but if you read the rest of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you'll find that God only allows a church, a person, to have an abundance for one reason. There's only one reason you have an abundance, one reason you might have money in the bank, so that you can be generous with that in the giving into the, the kingdom of God. But there are those that will say, well, if you send in $30 to our ministry... God is going to multiply it a hundredfold. They call it the hundredfold uh, proposition or whatever. And so if you send in $30, you'll get $3,000 back. So by faith, send in your $30. But unlike those false teachers on TV, Paul is not seeking the gift for himself, but for the spiritual fruit that increases to the Philippians' account. In order to explain this, Paul reaches deep into the Old Testament language of sacrificial worship. We see this in verse 18. He says, But I have received everything in full, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul switches to that exalted biblical language of sacrifice. And the picture suggested here is that of a burnt sacrifice, a fragrant offering, the Old Testament burnt offering, in which the offering was totally consumed by the fire so that a sumptuous beef roast aroma rose up to God and is an acceptable to him, and he is well pleased with it. 
In other words, generous giving is an act of worship. When we take the offering on a Sunday morning, it's an act of worship. And the fruit that increases to the account of the generous worshiper. It's acceptable to God. He is well pleased. When you give sacrificially out of your love for God, from your heart, for the gospel ministry, God says that smells great. I am well pleased. It's a beautiful thing. You can be assured that your generous offering, can I put it this way, brings an assuring smile to the face of our God. The fruitfulness of your generous giving not only abounds in meeting the needs of others, it abounds in bringing God pleasure. The Apostle Paul used similar language of sacrificial worship in Romans chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there. 12th chapter of Romans, verse 1. Very familiar verse. We see the language of sacrificial worship. But the sacrifice is different than what Paul was talking about with the Philippians. What is the sacrifice to be? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Now I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. And the word translated present there is the offering of a sacrifice. That's the way the word is used. A living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I mention this because this is, in fact, what the Philippians had done. They first gave themselves to the Lord and then to others. They laid themselves on the altar of God, presented their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy sacrifice, Lord, do with me what you will. I offer everything I am, everything I have unto you. And then they gave themselves to the Apostle Paul. But I like to quote Chuck Swindoll on this point. He says, the only thing with a living, wrong with a living sacrifice is that it keeps trying to squirm off the altar. We don't like it up there. We say, God, do with me what you will. Then we try like crazy to get out of anything and everything that feels uncomfortable or we don't like how it feels. We resist anything that would make me sacrifice in any way whatsoever. Often we get the idea that since Jesus was the perfect and final sacrifice for the atonement of sin, which he was, that God is no longer interested in sacrifice at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every act of worship, every act of Christian service that is pleasing to God still involves sacrifice. Without sacrifice, it's not acceptable and it's not true worship. Even when we praise God, the Bible calls it what in the book of Hebrews? The sacrifice of our lips. Why is singing praises on a Sunday morning? Why is praising God and reading the book of Psalms part of our worship? Why would praising God be a sacrifice? Because true worship is sacrificial, but you can't praise God and say, God, you're my all in all, as we sang last week. God, you're everything, without at the same time saying, I'm nothing. You can't praise God without taking something away sacrificially from yourself, from your wants, from your desires, whatever it is. You can't praise God and tell him he's your all in all and lift yourself up in any way whatsoever. So when we praise God, we take something away from ourselves and that is our sacrifice of our lips. It's not about me. But if you're like me, you like it to be about me. 
You like it to be about your wants, your needs, your preferences. But that's not true worship. Sacrificial giving and generosity results in fruit that increases to the account of the giver. Now we might wonder how could that be true among the poverty-stricken believers in Philippi. They suffered under the heavy hand of persecution. They were losing jobs and all kinds of stuff because they were Christians and believers in Jesus Christ in a very Roman pagan community and society. How could it possibly increase to their spiritual account when we see all these needs, as it were, in the Philippian church? One of the most powerful prayers in the midst of suffering I've ever read was uncovered from the horrors of Ravensbrück concentration camp. Ravensbrück was a concentration camp that was built in 1939 for women and children. Over 90,000 women and children perished at Ravensbrück alone, murdered by the Nazis. Corey Tenboon, who wrote The Hiding Place, was also imprisoned at Ravensbrück. And this prayer was found in the clothing of a dead child. And it says, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of this suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Isn't that incredible? Paul assured the Philippians that a generous church would participate in the gospel. And he also assured them that a generous church receives compound spiritual interest. It bears the fruit of, of such things as fellowship, humility, courage, generosity, greatness of heart, even forgiveness. Have you ever thought about you can be more forgiving because of your generosity? That just seems to turn things clear around. But that's the fruit of first giving ourselves to the Lord. And lastly, a generous church is well supplied. Now we come to the high point of this portion of Scripture. Verse 19 of Philippians chapter 4. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The first half of this great promise is closely linked and echoes the preceding verse. Just as the Philippians had kept Paul amply supplied. I am well supplied. I am amply supplied, he says in verse 18. So now God will certainly supply every need of theirs. It's important to realize that this promise to supply for supplies to generous people like the Philippians, this promise can't be claimed by people who live for themselves. Paul promised the generous church, and my God will supply every deed of yours. And this was intensely personal for Paul. His God, who had repeatedly displayed his power in every conceivable circumstance, and we've looked at all those circumstances in our study of the book of Philippians, that God, our God, would supply the Philippians' needs just as he had provided for Paul. But Pastor Kent used cautions at this point. 
Paul promised that God would meet not their greed, but their need. Not all they thought they needed, but all they truly needed. Every need compasses the breathtaking range of everything that is vital to living for Christ. Looking to the immediate context, this meant for the Philippians that God would meet any material need created by their great generosity to Paul. Furthermore, in regard to the spiritual concerns laid out in this letter, Paul or God would supply the need for joy and for steadfastness and for endurance, for humility and for concord and for peace and for the ability to face all circumstances. The stunning scope of this promise is that there is not one thing that they, and he adds, and all faithful Christians, truly needed that God would not give. On the basis of this, we can proclaim to every generous believer that God will meet every need he or she has. But he continues, but to the grudging, there is no such solace. The wholesale application of this great promise does not exist. It is for the generous follower of Christ alone, unquote. So how does God supply all of our needs? The answer is equally expansive according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I thought about that for a lot, and I thought, well, I can't say that better than Gordon Fee put it. (laughs) I just love it when somebody gets a handle on something like this and can put it in words that we can understand. He says, The Philippians' generosity towards Paul, expressed lavishly at the beginning of verse 18, is exceeded beyond all imagination by the lavish wealth of the eternal God who dwells in glory full of riches made available in Christ Jesus. God's riches are inherent in his being as the creator and the God of the universe. So his riches include and infinitely exceed the aggregate wealth of the universe. God's incalculable wealth together with the ineffable splendor of his glory form the treasury and the dazzling context from which he lavishes his children according to his riches, unquote. God gives according to his riches in Christ Jesus in glory. Let me put it this way. If I had a million dollars, I'd actually be in sin because I should have invested that in missions long ago. But if I had a million (laughs) dollars... And I gave you $100, I wrote you a check for $100, I would be giving you out of my riches. I'd be dipping into my riches and giving you out of my riches. However, if I gave you a blank check, I would be giving according to my riches. According to my riches. But God does far more because his riches are infinite and cannot be diminished in the slightest by the endless zeros of a celestial blank check. Paul says that it's according to God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This describes in whom and how the riches that come from God's glory are given to his people. Paul began this letter to the Philippians by addressing it to the saints in Christ Jesus, and he concludes it in Christ Jesus. For Christians, every need is met in Christ. He is the beginning and our end. All things come to us in him and through him. And this is the great assurance that comes to those who are in Christ Jesus.
who share in the fellowship of the gospel through their care and generosity, who sacrificially serve and worship God through the giving of themselves first to the Lord and to others. Paul says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That raises the question, so what now? We've basically concluded the book of Philippians. How do we apply this promise as Grace Baptist Church? We need to come to understand that when the child of God is in the will of God, serving for the glory of God, then he or she will have every need met. When Grace Baptist Church is in the will of God, serving for the glory of God, we will have every one of our needs met. Hudson Taylor was that uh, pioneer missionary to China. And he often said, when God's work is done God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. Hudson Taylor spent a lifetime of sacrificial service, first giving himself to the Lord and to those in China. And it was a beautiful thing. It was a good thing. And his work is still reaping fruit in China today. As Grace Baptist Church, we must do God's work. We must do it in God's way for God's glory. And we will not lack God's supply. Next week, we begin the book of Acts. And that is one of the main themes of the book of Acts. How do we do the Lord's work in God's way for his glory? Well, we're going to spend 28 chapters in the book of Acts studying that. And God's going to richly bless us each step of the way. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the, the generosity of the Philippians who who gave to the Apostle Paul and Paul's generosity to others through, through his ministry and work and service. And Father, I thank you for each one who is here this morning that gives generously in many different ways. It's not just money. It's giving of time and resources and abilities and spiritual gifts and the many ways that people serve, Father. And I pray that the Lord, each one, would know that the hand of blessing, your blessing, is upon them, Father. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would increase it to the fruit of our accounts, that more and more people might be blessed through what we call our ministries as Grace Baptist Church. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.